Space Force officials say they want to reach full force capacity by this summer. While Space Force says it doesn't have the recruiting problems experienced by the other services, it does have to build its ability to train new guardians. For more, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke with Space Force's Chief of Cyber and Spectrum Operations, Colonel Joe Wingo. One of the key things, one of the reasons why training is so important is because uh, it has to really kind of get in front of tools acquisition and even get in front of recruiting. And so we spend a lot of time focusing on how do we get people into the Space Force, right, and how are we recruiting and things like that. We spend a lot of time thinking about what's the new tool that we want to buy or the new weapon we want to buy or, or you know, thing we want to buy. But the other key piece in that capability is the training. So how do I get guardians where they're able to utilize that weapon system or mission system effectively in order to be able to generate a capability and cause effects? So... One of, the key, one of the problems with training, though, is that it takes a while to stand up the schoolhouse. You have, you know, you've got to find your location. You've got to have, you know, range space in order to be able to train students. You have to have instructors that have been trained up, and you have to have curriculum that takes time to develop, right? You have all of those things that require time, a lot of time. And so the challenge is oftentimes we can recruit really quick, and we can get people in, and we can buy the next piece of technology really quick and get that done. But there's this training oftentimes gets forgotten about. And then because it gets forgotten about, historically with a lot of systems, it's happened poorly. Um, Things get thrown into place really quick. We've seen a lot of, uh, over the course of my career, I've seen a lot of systems come in where they do models like train the trainer and on-the-job training for various types of, of systems. And those have really... Uh, inevitably failed. It's just, it's not a good training model. And it, it doesn't provide predictable consistency with what's taught to a student. And it doesn't really uh, effectively measure a student's understanding of their ability to be able to do what it is that you're trying to train them to do. So one of the things that we're trying to do then is figure out, well, how do we shorten the timeline for how we get training, how we make training available so that we're making the train of, uh, training available ahead of the guardians getting there and needing it and in time with the tools or the systems that are being procured. In doing that, then you have to you end up trying to leverage some of your existing training sources like uh, existing universities through existing degree programs, uh, public universities or private universities or military universities like AFIT, or whether or not you're utilizing commercial certifications um, as they exist to do that or whether or not you're using existing uh, mil- existing military training from other services. So to be specific right now, are you talking about ROTC programs? Are you talking about commissioning young officers? Or are you talking about further training for enlisted recruits? So I'm talking more, mostly about everything that happens after they come into the service. From On the recruiting piece, like when you're talking about things like ROTC, so we're already filtering on the officer side. We're already in, in the cyber career fields in particular. We're already filtering recruits for having the right kind of degrees before they come in. So we already have those requirements that are built into the recruiting process. On the enlisted side, you know, they already have things like ASVABs where they're trying to basically uh, and other tests that we use to make sure that we're getting folks with the right aptitudes into placed into the right career fields. Are, are they different specifications than the Air Force or the other services have, for like, say, the ASVAB? Uh, at this point in time, I don't believe so. So I'm not tracking the ASVAB specifically, so I couldn't speak to that. Um, so how do you filter them? 
Well, in terms of the ASVAB? In terms of having the skills and qualifications you need for Space Force. I mean, really, to, to, to be a guardian, what we're looking for uh, coming into the Space Force is the same thing a lot of the other services are looking for just in terms of overall desire to serve, what we're looking for in terms of people with with the a value system that matches up to the services value system and the services core values. Um, I mean, so those are the key fundamental pieces. And then beyond that, just looking for folks who demonstrate the aptitude to be able to learn the skill set that you're trying to teach. And that's kind of where the ASVAB comes in. It looks at everything from language skills to how you look at engineering problems to spatial recognition types of things to try to figure out um, not just what somebody knows, but what we think they can effectively learn quickly. That's kind of what aptitude testing is about in general. So um, there's been a lot of research in that area, like language aptitude, you know, what's your ability to be able to learn a language. Some people learn languages faster than others. The same way some people learn cyber stuff faster than others. And so trying to identify those folks uh, is a challenge. But that's, like I said, there's tools like that out there that we are trying to use to do some of that filtering you're talking about or that you're asking about. And then beyond that, just as folks come into the program, after they get in, there's they go through the training. The training itself is designed to bring people up to speed, but then if somebody's not able to meet training requirements or progress in training, then um, we have to look for a way to off-ramp them and to uh, you know, find a different way for them to be able to serve. Talk to me a little about the piece where you're going to have contractors do some of the education, at least on the short-term basis, mm-hmm. until you can scale up full-scale training for Space Force. Sure. So for the most part in cyber, I mean, we've always partnered with industry, um, even in our longstanding schoolhouses. Um, we tend to incorporate existing commercial certifications into the curriculum. In general, the commercial certification is not the entirety of the curriculum, uh, but the commercial certification will cover portions of the curriculum requirements. And so what we'll do is we'll have commercial, uh, you know, we'll, we'll bring in a, a, a commercial vendor to do to do their piece of the training and send and have students go through that, the certification, uh, go through the certification tests, and they'll usually have, that's usually part of the course, right? Um, so that's, we've had those commercial certifications integrated into everything from our initial skills training that's been, that goes on at Keesler, um, all the way through our, our you know, weapon system training, our initial qualification training that we do at, uh, at the 39th, and, um, and even some of the more specialized training beyond that. So we, we tend to partner with industry as much as we can so that we're not having to reinvent curriculum, you know, hire new instructors, um, even in places where the industry partners can, uh, you know, they provide their own range space that we can utilize for the training as well. That that um, ends up saving us money in the long run. So any places that we can partner like that, we do. It helps to make sure that um, we focus our instruction on the things that are more military-specific uh, in terms of, like, employment of capability. And so one of the key tenets is do what only you can do Right, and so we try to make sure that we're focusing our you know military instructors and training on those things that are more military specific, and the ways that we can leverage commercial providers for things that are more generic to industry in general. Space Force Colonel Joe Wingo, Chief of Cyber and Spectrum Operations, speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. 
David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I 
really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it 
you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.